Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump, Ellis. Well, good morning. And there's so much going on in the world today in uh, law, politics, and culture. And of course, we need to always be concerned about what is really going on and what the mainstream media is not telling us and uh, how this may ultimately affect ourselves, our families, and our health. And one uh, really key article that I read recently from our good friend, Raw Egg Nationalist, who will join me in a moment to discuss, is uh, titled this in the National Pulse, The Curious Connection Between Lab-Grown Meat Primate Breeding and China's biowarfare program. So you all remember Raw Egg Nationalist, who is um, an Anon account, meaning that uh, he just has not told us exactly his identity because, you know, some people don't actually like all of the hate mail that people like me get. So we, we appreciate him on that. Um, but this is a really important piece. Um, and Raw Egg, thanks so much for joining me today on this. Um, so lab-grown meat, you were describing a couple of weeks ago on the program how um, this actually has a composition that is really uh, dangerous to our bodies in terms of health. And so what has all of this research uh, revealed? Well, thank you for having me again, Jenna. Um, it's revealed it's revealed a number of things. So I've been poking around in the business of uh, good meat, uh, which is one of the principles, one of the big three lab-grown meat producers in the world. Uh, I've been poking around in their business for a little while, trying to find out more about their product, how it's made, what it's made of. Um, and that's involved looking at things like their FDA filings, for instance, and also reading a lot of a lot of the publicity material, following them on Twitter. Now, uh, initially, uh, a few months ago, then I was writing about... Um, Good meats, uh, kind of uh, scandal-ridden history, I suppose. So they they had a major rebrand in about 2017. Uh, good meat was originally called Hampton Creek, and they were selling vegan mayonnaise, and there were all sorts of scandals about that. And then I started to look into the lab-grown meat itself and its composition. There was a big Bloomberg piece about the fact that lab-grown meat companies, including Good Meat and others, don't want consumers to know that actually lab-grown meat, what it's made of, immortalized cell lines, uh, it's basically functionally indistinguishable from cancer. And uh, humans don't have any history of eating uh, cancer. So there, there are all sorts of safety concerns that aren't actually being added adequately addressed and and actually what's worse they're they're being hidden so these companies don't even want people to know what immortalized cell lines are they don't want to know uh the potential uh, safety risks which have been raised by experts as well so it's not just anonymous people on the internet like me raising these safety worries it's it's real experts but this latest revelation about links between good meat and well, the Chinese biowarfare program, which sounds like something you know that you might see on a 
on some sort of um in an outlandish movie or in a in a pulp novel or something it's like a, a stranger than fiction plot but i poked into the fda filings for good meat so good meat recently received uh approval for its lab grown meat for sale to the public in the us after submitting a detailed safety dossier to the fda i looked in the dossier and i saw this company join biologics it's called and i thought hmm that name sounds familiar. And so I, I did a search on the internet and lo and behold, I discovered that Join Biologics is the same company that uh, hit the headlines last year when it bought 1,400 acres of land in Florida to try to build a primate breeding facility. Uh, now, that made national headlines and caused all sorts of scandal because it was revealed that Join Biologics shares key personnel uh, including the founder of the company, but also research scientists and, and um, key management personnel with the People's Liberation Army's Biowarfare Division, which has been sanctioned by the US and companies associated with the Biowarfare Division have been sanctioned too by the US. So this created a big scandal last year and it was raised in Congress and Governor DeSantis talked about it. Uh, and Join Biologics, this company, abandoned its efforts to build a... Uh, the primate uh, breeding facility, but now they're back in they're back uh, in the news because they're um, they're now producing this novel food stuff that is about to enter the American uh, food supply, and it's it's very very worrying. I think. Yeah, I I will say. I mean, I literally. I mean, people you know who are just listening on audio can't see me actively uh, making you know, the faces of of the of absolute <laughs> disgust when you say that this is. Uh, the same uh, biology of, of basically a cancer cell or a tumor. I mean, this is so disgusting. I don't think if, if anything was marketed as, you know, here, why don't you go and have, um, you know, spaghetti and, and tumor balls? People wouldn't uh, think that that sounded very appetizing. And yet... Um, this kind of revelation in your reporting suggests that people are buying things or have or will in the future buy things under this label of, oh, this is lab grown meat, but they don't exactly know what it is they're consuming. So um, so how is this even really being marketed to people to say, you know, instead of um, having organically raised chickens or you know things that are genuinely meat this is really okay to have an alternative why would anyone actually prefer that i mean is this mainly for say vegetarians or you know people who want um like like i remember the the impossible meat um you know some of those things that it's actually vegetable that somehow you know it's like tofu that tastes like meat according to them i don't think that's true because i'm not a vegetarian but um you know who what's what's the consumer base for this anyway well, so this is this the lab grown meat industry is being pushed as a totally disruptive industry. This isn't a supplementary industry. This isn't going to be a niche industry. The the people who are pushing lab grown meat, people like Josh Josh Tetrick, who is the CEO of Good Meat, see it as replacing traditional meat products. So they they envisage a, a point in the near future where nobody eats conventional meat. They're all eating lab-grown meat. And it's marketed or it's advertised and, and uh, it gets its sort of USPs, its unique selling points in a number of different um, ways. So first of all, they say, well, this is cruelty-free meat, right? You, you can enjoy chicken, you can enjoy beef, but no animal has to die for that to happen. So 
you you know if you if you don't like factory farming and nobody should like factory farming because factory farming is appalling um uh then you can still you can enjoy a guilt-free steak or you can enjoy a guilt-free chicken breast that's that's one pillar and then the second pillar really is uh is the environmental uh pillar so they say you know factory uh, farming in general is one of the largest contributors of uh co2 of greenhouse gases methane to the uh to the atmosphere that's leading to catastrophic global warming so if we can produce meat in a way that is environmentally friendly that doesn't have this massive uh greenhouse gas footprint and is and is totally ethical and involves no suffering then presumably who could object you know you, you know you're, you're getting there are no downsides to this product and that is how they market it they're, they're trying to say this is an absolutely this is a win-win situation for consumers animals and the environment but the truth is that actually it couldn't be further from the truth so i mean not only i mean this revelation is 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 worrying obviously from a from a national security standpoint and from a food safety standpoint, because the product is being manufactured by a company that has links to the Chinese military's biowarfare program, but it's also it also has quite worrying ethical implications. So, you know, we're having this product marketed as a cruelty-free meat, and yet it's being manufactured by a company that breeds tens of thousands of lab monkeys for lab experimentation join biologics and its parent company join laboratories is one of the biggest producers of lab animals in the world for sale and they've already bought up companies on the east coast uh, of of america that are involved in um in producing and, and distributing and doing lab animal testing so it's dread there's dreadful dreadful hypocrisy involved here too as is so often the case with these um supposedly you know whiter than white alternatives to traditional foods and um traditional practices wow and this is just it, it's so disgusting frankly and um and so this is being marketed toward uh, people who want to have, you know, a, a guilt-free or sort of um, more ethically grown meat. And and I just think, okay, at that point then, why not just abstain, period? Because we've seen so many um, consequences and other health considerations on other kinds of genetically modified engineering. I mean, like GMOs and um, and a whole host of, of other things. And um, and yet when, when you just have that isolated by itself, that would be concerning and ethical enough. But, um, but Raw Egg Nationalist and your, um, your piece here in the National Pulse is titled Revealed the Curious Connection Between Lab-Grown Meat, Primate Breeding, and China's Biowarfare Program. Um, that, that whole piece about uh, China's biowarfare program being involved, um, to me, is the most concerning, especially if this is not being openly uh, told to the consumer, because we know that China doesn't have really any ethics when it comes to um, you know, their own population when it comes to, um, you know, a lot of these other um, basic matters of ethics that certainly any um, real ethical society should be concerned with. So what are some possible implications here why China would be funding this? Well, I think what we have to realize is that China and the U.S. are involved in a Cold War, like the Cold War between uh, China and the Soviet Union. And China can't beat the United States in a conventional war. That's just not going to happen. 
so what the Chinese are doing, and, and you know, this is their deliberate strategy, is to engage in unconventional warfare. And, I mean, control of the food supply is absolutely essential to strategic um, security. And it, it's amazing that it's, it's amazing that basically the Chinese are being allowed in via the back door to introduce novel foodstuffs, foodstuffs that actually we have good reason to, to who, about whose safety we have good reason to worry. So, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly we we there needs to be oversight of this, and, it, and I, I I really do think people need to know about this because it's it's something that when you do tell people, then they think they they you know they say, oh my, this is this is insane, you know, why why are we letting why are we letting the a company that's so closely so closely a part of the uh, sort of military industrial complex of our closest competitor be be involved in this way it's it, it, it seems almost suicidal and yet um, if, if it weren't for me actually reading the FDA filings because very few people are ever going to do that I mean they're boring documents it's a 150 page <laughs> te technical analysis you know so they, I think they kind of bank on the fact that actually, although they've made it, they've made these disclosures, they've actually said, you know, Join Biologics is making this product for us. Um, most people won't even won't even read the the FDA disclosures in the first place. So they, you know, they can uh, they can disclose it, but nobody knows. Right, and 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 that's where I think because we live in such a soundbite driven society that um, unless these types of things are put into the mainstream media, which is why your article in the National Pulse is so important, these types of things really won't uh, come to the fore. And people, you know, we just go to the supermarket and assume, frankly, that, you know, whatever is packaged and whatever is sold because it's, you know, whether it's FDA approved or whatever, um, that it's safe and it's okay to consume um, and, and because it's being sold at a grocery store and we really do need to understand uh, all of these different parameters and what's actually going on so um, i'm going to hold raw egg over into the next segment because we're already out of time um, for this one but uh, you can also follow him on social media you can find this article in the national pulse and again that headline is revealed the curious connection between lab-grown meat primate breeding and china's bioware bio warfare program and i have a lot more questions when re we return right here on jenna ellis in the morning Love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And I'm talking with my good friend, Raw Egg Nationalist, who all of you should be following on social media and reading all of these important stories like the one in the National Pulse uh, that was recently out titled Revealed, The Curious Connection Between Lab-Grown Meat, Primate Breeding, and China's Biowarfare Program. Um, there are so many ethical implications and questions and just um, discussion points here I think that we all should be concerned about, um, Raw Egg Nationalists, because, you know, most of the time, and especially in, you know, kind of drive-time radio, like, uh, like what we're doing this morning, um, you know, we tend to just talk about the things that mainstream media 
media wants our attention gravitated towards. And those things, of course, are very important. We need to talk about politics. We need to talk about all the things going on in Washington. But we need to talk about things that are, in my view, purposefully being shielded and not talked about from the mainstream media. And it's things like this, um, as you described it in the last segment, a cold war between the United States and China, where China, um, it seems, is, is simply trying to infiltrate our food supply by other methods. And so how do they even get a partner like Good Meat, or which is this lab-grown meat division of Eat Just Incorporated? Um, and, and, and that, I assume, I mean, is that an American company? And why would they even, they would do business with, um, with the Chinese biowarfare industry? Well, this is a very, I mean, it's a very interesting story how Good Meat ended up uh, in this position. So I mentioned a little bit earlier about Hampton Creek, about uh, Good Meat's rather sort of scandalous, scandal-ridden past. Good Meat, uh, or Eat Just Incorporated, was founded in, I think it was 2012, and operated as Hampton Creek for a number of years. There was scan- scandal after scandal, food safety, uh, employee safety, all sorts of stuff like that. And um, they rebranded as Eat Just Inc. in 2017. And I think they found it very hard to continue uh, receiving the investment, uh, the venture capital that they were reliant on. So they turned to the East. They turned to companies uh, that were sort of less familiar with them, that weren't American companies. They turned to uh, companies in the Middle East and to companies in the Far East. And what's interesting is that actually eat uh, good meat has already served lab-grown meat to paying customers, but not in the US, in Singapore. So the first place that good meat uh, received uh, authorization to sell its cultured chicken to the uh, to the general public was Singapore. And that was in 2020. And that was a big, that was all over the news. It's in Bloomberg and, and all the you know sort of news. Lab grown meat is now a reality. People can buy it. You know, this is the future of food. Um, so a lot of their, certainly in the last five years, then a lot of their, um, their principal focus has been on the East and they have a big, uh, facility in Singapore, where I think, I mean, I think that what they're planning to do is to cater to the Chinese market as well. I think that they're looking to corner the Chinese market. Um, So I don't know, for instance, and I probably need to do some digging, I don't know whether the uh, lab-grown chicken that they're making in Singapore is also made by Join Biologics or not. But the thing is, I mean, Good Meat is, they're explicit in their publicity videos. I've seen all sorts of publicity materials about China and how important Chinese biotech is to uh, to the future of of these novel proteins and in particular to good meat and its and its operation. So they're enthusiastic about this. It's not although it's although obviously they they don't want people knowing what Join Biologics is is famous for and its and its particular associations. Then they're they're definitely not shy about the fact that they are. Uh, tying a lot of their future success to China in particular. Wow. And this is where the the overall scope of um, world policy and, you know, as we in America would, would describe it as foreign policy, is 
it is, it's really amazing how we in America are so kind of myopically focused on just what's going on here in Washington that we tend to not pay attention to some of these other worldviews that are dominating and will ultimately infiltrate our own consumer base and our own way of life if we aren't careful. And um, so how then, you know, with, with all of this, how does the FDA um, get involved in something like this. It, I mean, w- I would assume that the FDA has to approve um, this type of technology, and wouldn't they know or at least be concerned that um, you know someone uh, like this Join Biologics and and Chinese biowarfare program is part of this, and would at least raise some questions on that front. Well, yes, you would. I mean, you would think so, but I've actually seen n- no indication whatsoever that that is the case. When a company uh, wants to bring a novel ingredient to the market, and you know, immortalized cell lines are a novel food ingredient, we've never consumed them uh, in our 200,000 year history as, as uh, modern Homo sapiens. Uh, so when a company wants to bring a novel ingredient to the market, it has to go through uh, this process in the US that's known as generally recognized as safe designation, or they have to um, uh, achieve that. And In the mid-90s, there was a new route uh, introduced by the FDA because the FDA had a huge backlog dealing with novel ingredients, novel foodstuffs, additives. Uh, And this is called the self-affirmed route. And this is now what most corporations do when they're bringing a novel ingredient to to the market. Basically, what you can do as a corporation is you convene a panel of experts and you get them to decide whether or not they think your product is safe and then you prevent and then you present their dossier their report to the FDA and the FDA then decides on the basis of what they read in the report whether they agree i mean it's it's crazy and we we talked about this last time when we were talking about the mrna mm-hmm. vaccines uh there was a there was a study that was published a very very critical study of the way that the FDA um uses this self-affirmed route and the the study authors said we we're in, we have a fox guarding the hen house situation and that is precisely what it is this situation this whole route of self-affirmation um is 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 basically um it just totally favors the corporations it's it's totally in in their um in their best interests and and not in the interests of consumers it's opaque it's opaque even to the fda so actually the evidence that the independent supposedly independent experts consider doesn't have to be submitted to the fda um uh, i mean there's no in the actual fda filings although it says about joint biologics it says that they're involved that they produce the cultured chicken it says where they produce it it says that they're responsible for safety testing and for preventing cross-contamination and all that sort of stuff it doesn't give any it doesn't give any um any company details about joint biologics it doesn't say you know joint biologics was in the news last year for trying to you know buy a primate facility in florida or anything like that it's i i would imagine that Actually, if you were at the FDA and you wanted to know anything about joint biologics, you'd have to find that out yourself. Right. And and this is where the FDA, in my view, is utterly failing to do its its main basic job, which is to make sure that things are actually genuinely safe and have consumer protection uh, parameters and to actually follow a process that is independent. Because if they're supposed to be this independent 
uh, arbiter of whether or not to approve uh, a new technology or um, this kind of you know cell line thing, uh, they should have an independent assessment, not just allow people to bring their own studies and say, you know, here's here's what we're affirming, and you're just going to have to trust us, basically. I mean, it, it, they may as well then have anybody who files for FDA approval just get an automatic rub, rubber stamp because that's how they're treating this. And so, to me, this story was so fascinating on a number of levels, and I appreciate you um, you joining me this morning, uh, Raw Egg Nationals, because um, because. These types of things will not be covered by the mainstream media. Um, the the perception of most of America that government um, is just doing their job. And sure, we question it here and there. Of course, you know, the FBI and the deep state. But a lot of people generally think, oh, if it's FDA approved, then it's safe. I mean, I was even um, at a, a doctor's office um, a week or so ago on, you know, something totally different. And he tried to actually sell me on this procedure that was totally crazy. I didn't need. And, um, and, and this isn't my regular doctor, um, just went in for, you know, something kind of more urgent. Um, welcome to Florida. You get a lot of bug bites, but, um, (laughs) but, um, but, but this technology, like he tried to sell me on this as, you know, oh, and it's FDA approved. Like, I know what you're thinking. There's some safety concerned, but it's FDA approved. And I'm like, that must mean that this is commonly a selling point for consumers. And so the biggest thing to me on this story is that is not only the connection with China and what's going on, but how our own government is failing the American people and why we need to be skeptical and we need to have more reporters and investigators and people like you that are willing to read these boring reports and tell us what's in them. I mean, and so, but for your reporting on this, um, we may have never known all of this. So in, I'm assuming that there are other things that we just kind of take for granted as safe or as government regulated and they're approved and everything. And they're they're not. There are a lot of safety concerns. So how can the average person really have healthy skepticism toward um, some of these institutions and try to figure out for themselves if you know some of these things are genuinely healthy? They're okay for. Um, consumables, they're okay to use for health regimens. I mean, what should the average person be considering? That's a very, very good question, Jenna. I mean, I think if you want a, if you want a, a real red pill about the FDA, then do some research into the licensing of aspartame. Just type in um, type in aspartame Donald Rumsfeld, and you will you'll find some very, very interesting material about what happened why aspartame ended up getting licensed over the head of over the heads of a number of scientists who warned that it could cause cancer that's a that's a real um, sort of rabbit hole to go down and and it's very very interesting and enlightening about the the role of 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 corporations and corporate money and and influence peddling in the licensing of novel foodstuffs um but I mean, as a general principle, then then my general dietary principle is always to try to think about what uh, our ancestors used to eat. I think that we need to. We've over the past century, we've moved further and further away from the the lifestyles, uh, not on, not only in terms of physical activity, but also uh, the diets of our ancestors. And I think that we need basically to move back in the other direction. And so. You know, uh, we don't need lab-grown meat. That's the simple, 
that's the simple um that's a simple response to these claims that uh, that we do you know our ancestors didn't need it and our ancestors actually uh were probably in in a great many ways much healthier than us so i think uh I think a I think a healthy skepticism about novel foodstuffs and novel products is is good, and it almost invariably does turn out to be the case that actually they have all these these products that are introduced, and you know, we're told that they're wonder products and that they're going to make us healthier and they revolutionise our lives and the way we cook and all these kinds of things. Actually, turn out to have some very unpleasant hidden costs. You know, if if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think that's uh, that's a pretty good bit of um, homespun wisdom to follow. <laughs> yeah, and and I would agree with that um, as well. I mean, and of course, you know, modernization and um, and some of these new technologies that do have some benefits and make our lives better um, do often also come with hidden costs, and then it becomes a cost-benefit analysis. But that should be up to the individual consumer, and it should be up to someone to to actually know all of the facts and have. Um, the ability to make that determination for themselves. And this is why, you know, marketing just as as a whole industry is is so bad for the consumers overall because you have these um, these commercials. And I even remember a friend of mine, um, you know, from um, from Ireland actually was over here a few years ago and was just telling me how it was remarkable to see all of the pharmaceutical industries commercials with, you know, lauding all these benefits, ask your doctor if X medication is right for you, and then goes on with like the second half of the commercial, all of these disclaimers that, but, you know, we'll diminish that. And, and who cares if you, you know, get all of these other side effects for it, you know, this one thing, this is great. And saying that, you know, that that's not allowed over in, um, over in Ireland. And I don't know if, you know, things have changed since then, but, um, but I just remember how, um, you know, he was very um, shocked by how our, entire consumer and marketing base, particularly on television, um, was was just so free-for-all kind of. And, and yet we tend to, as Americans, think and have this perception that everything has been tested independently. Everything is safe. If it's on the market, then consumer protection laws, you know, have made this okay. But your um, analysis and your uh, raw egg nationalist, your um, mention of the aspartame and, and Donald Rumsfeld angle, which um, you'd mentioned previously on this program, I think is important to underscore and highlight again, because so many people who are in the federal government either came from the private sector and so are now uh, knowing what they would have wanted in the private sector, or they're in government just for a couple of years in an administration, knowing that they're going to return to the private sector and wanting those jobs again. And so we need to be very skeptical in um, and having a healthy skepticism to make sure that we are doing what's best for ourselves and for our families. And, you know, of course, the biblical worldview um, would say that we as as um, human beings are made in the image of God. God has provided um, good things for us to eat and consume, and we need to make sure that we continue to have our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, we make the best decisions that we can for ourselves, for our bodies, and to be healthy. So, Rag Nationalist, really appreciate that. You can find his article on the National Pulse. And uh, always out of time yet again, but um, really appreciate him coming on. And these are important, important topics to discuss, not just drilling down every day in politics. So, hope you enjoyed it. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Speaking truth. 
with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening to Raw Egg Nationalists in the last segment, um, you know, I had thought about going into a couple of other top stories uh, in this last segment that are, of course, trending and are always um, important discussion points. But um, there were a couple of comments that he made, and I, and I always really appreciate his analysis. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of these perspectives and, of course, this reporting on, um, you know, China and the biowarfare uh, program that is infiltrating now these lab-grown meats, all of that is so important to discuss. But there were a couple of comments that he made that, to me at least, uh, were perceived as coming from obviously an evolutionary-based perspective, saying, you know, the hundreds of thousands of years is with modern homo sapiens, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of going the political direction, um, I want to bring this out to a bigger um, biblical worldview and uh, viewpoint perspective and um, and actually share something I think that um, I might not have up to this point for uh, the AFR listeners, which is um, my perspective on young earth creation and the biblical worldview of Genesis. Um, and, and I think this is just timely because I don't want listeners um, to assume that everything that guests that I bring on um, that I agree with everything. Um, and I still think it's incredibly important that you hear from them and that you are um, aware enough to say, well, wait a minute. And hopefully that was a flag in your mind um, when those couple of comments were made, but that you can parse that and say, okay, well, maybe he's coming from, you know, an evolution-based perspective um, or, and, and I haven't asked, I don't know what um, his view on God and, and um, overall biblical Christianity is. Um, but then can still take the interview and the content and, of course, read this article for what it is, um, which is incredibly important for us as uh, as Americans to understand what's going on with lab-grown meat and making these determinations. I mean, after reading this, I can say for a certainty, I'm not going to ever consume any of that. I think um, that I try to stay away in general from GMOs and a lot of these um, sort of really artificial uh, infiltrations of what we consume. Um, my family has always just tended to be more organic. We try to eat really well um, in in the sense of what, um, you know, what God has actually created for us instead of, um, you know, a lot of the artificial things. And, you know, and of course, everybody goes off of that for a little bit, especially when you're on vacation or you're doing other things and that's okay. But we do need to understand uh, what's going on and what are the best choices. So um, those types of guests I do bring on the show so that you can hear from them and their perspectives. But I hope that you did um, have that kind of red flag as well from a biblical perspective on this show to say, well, okay, we can kind of reject that one-off comment. Um, as Christians who understand that in the beginning, God created. And Genesis 1-1 is so important um, as a foundational premise for the rest of history or his story as uh, God has created. And when we talk about being um, humans who are created in the image of God, have inherent dignity and worth, we're not just talking about the moment of conception for each individual human. Um, of course, that's important to the pro-life argument. But also, 
we have to consider what was the beginning of time as we know it. And this goes into a whole other fascinating topic of um, if you've ever read anything from William Lane Craig, um, who has some very interesting other theological perspectives that I'm tending to not agree with him as much now. But um, his book, Time and Eternity, is so fascinating on what is time and this measurement of how we can experience the movements of God throughout our lifetimes and throughout the wider span of history and from the beginning, which is Genesis in the Bible, until the end, which is foretold to us in Revelation. So I do believe that your um, understanding as a Christian and your theology of the beginning and of Genesis will inform your eschatology, which is your view of the end times. And we need to understand this perspective. And I kind of see it in my mind as, as more of a linear um, perspective to have, you know, the start at the beginning and then con- the conclusion at the end. And then we see on that linear time frame. Um, all of the the various important points of history. And, and I've told you all on this program before as well that one of the greatest gifts that my mom gave to me and my brothers in homeschooling is uh, to learn world history chronologically. And so we started with the book of Genesis and then came right up to the modern era Uh, And then, of course, we also learned um, eschatology and the study of the end times and and revelation. I am not an amillennialist. I don't think that uh, revelation is purely allegorical or that it happened um, in the fall of the Roman Empire because we've seen too much that Satan has not been bound and that there are things that are yet to come. And I also believe as an author God, who is the author and the inspiration of all scripture that is is breathed by God, it is his word. As an author, he gave us the beginning and he has the conclusion. He concluded history in uh, the canon of scripture, which I also believe theologically is now closed. There is no new revelation. We have general revelation around us, but specific revelation in Uh, the scripture in the word of God is closed. Um, So anyone who says, you know, well, this is a uh, a prophetic word of God, um, I would be very skeptical of that if they were trying to make that assertion that it was part of um, the canon of of scripture and that they um, were receiving those messages similarly to um, the people that God used to write down the inspiration of the Bible. So with with that in mind, and of course, there's so much we could talk about on each of those premises, right? Um, but I'm just letting you know where my viewpoint of um, my understanding of theology broadly and specifically with respect to the beginning and the end times and the whole of scripture, we need to be very uh, aware as we're talking about politics or uh, foreign policy or, you know, biolab, Chinese warfare, you know, this kind of stuff, um, we always need to consider this within the context of our greater theology. That's what makes us Christians who have a biblical worldview and who speak on any subject matter from a Christian perspective. And so if we understand the scope of the Bible, and we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
That is a literal fact. And in the book of Genesis, God told us that he created. He told us why he created. And he created the very first um, understanding of, of how we empirically can understand and experience God. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, the, the documentary, The Privileged Planet, I would really encourage you to watch that if you haven't yet. Um, because how God finally tuned this universe for us to discover and be able to understand who our creator is. Um, there are so many things that could never have happened by chance. And we also look at um, Genesis from the biblical perspective that if God said that he created and then that was simply a work of fiction, well, then how would we ever trust anything else that scripture is telling us? And so often people who will read into the book of Genesis, um, other viewpoints of the origin of scripture, well, you know, a day doesn't really mean a day. It wasn't a literal 24-hour period. Well, then why would God not have simply told us that? And if we can read into what does a day mean, well, then why are we so uh, concerned when, for example, the Supreme Court reads into the definition of and the word sex in the 19 civil, uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act to say, well, sex doesn't mean the biological difference between men and women. We're going to read into that and say it also includes sexual orientation and gender identity, right? So, um, so now we're going to expand this even further. That's called proof texting. And this happens in law and it also happens in theology when we look at a statute like the 1964 Civil Rights Act or we look at biblical text because they're both the same in the sense, not that they're inspired, you know, or any of those comparisons, but they're both the same in that they are texts. And so how you read text, then the concept and the philosophy of originalism is actually not just um, a constitutional law theory and philosophy of how to interpret the Constitution. It's a theory and philosophy for how to inter interpret any written text. And there are a couple of principles of interpreting written text that are very important. You have to have the plain meaning of the words. You have to understand the context. You have to understand the author's intent. Um, there is a huge movement to say, well, the words don't really mean what the author meant. It just depends on how it impacts the individual reader, right? So whatever I take from the Constitution, for example, or from this novel, well, how that impacts me in my life, that's that's the interpretation and and that's how I should view this book. Well, a lot of people take that same view towards scripture. Well, what does this verse mean to me? How do and 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 they conflate that with how does this principle impact and influence my life. Now, saying that, um, you know, when God says that murder is evil, well, that's a principle that we should take to our lives and say, okay, because God has established and ordained that as moral law, that therefore means I should not go out and murder. And therefore, I should be pro-life because abortion is an intentional uh, medical intervention specifically caused and designed to cause the death of a child, which is murder. So therefore, I'm going to be pro-life. That type of analysis is very, very different than some of the people and even pastors that you hear that will say, well, you know, what does this this particular psalm mean to me today? And 
and you you view it in such a vague way that you personalize and int- and internalize it in a way that the author God himself didn't intend and this is where one of the seminal examples of this is Jeremiah 29:11 right everybody knows this who's a Christian you know for I know the plans I have for you saith the Lord plans um, to not to harm you but to increase and to prosper you now is it a biblical principle that God, has the best plan for our lives, that he loves us. Absolutely. But is that what that particular verse is describing? Is that the lesson that we get from this particular verse? Well, that verse has been taken totally out of context. That was a conversation more widely that God was having with um, with Jeremiah specifically and was trying to tell him as a prophet who is known as the weeping prophet in scripture because he didn't win one convert in his entire ministry, yet God still called him faithful because he did what God had for him for his life. So what do we, what can we learn about the nature of God, his interactions with um, the Old Testament prophets, the whole narrative of scripture, the gospel, um, the now the church age and eschatology in the beginning, all of these things. Well, we can learn a lot and we should learn a lot. That is theology. This is why we should all be educated theologians as Christians. But in that one little verse, so many Christians and even pastors will proof text that and say, oh, this verse, you know, for I know the plans I have for you and you in that verse means literally everybody or, you know, me as someone reading Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, I'm taking that and personalizing it. That's out of context. So we need to, as an example, have the have originalism as a philosophy and a methodology and a hermeneutic, to put it in theological language, that we apply toward our reading and our analysis of scripture. So when we look at the beginning and we look at Genesis 1-1 and we look at how God told us how he ordained and established the universe to which we are presented, that we can then discover God, his relationship to us. We understand the fall of man, for example, without Genesis and the actual factual history of a literal Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. If evolution was true, then the entire reason for Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross for all of our sins wouldn't even make sense because original sin would not have come through a willful choice for humans to say we believe that we are God and reject God and therefore need a savior. So the entire scope of history and of the Bible has to be read in context, and we as Christians have to have our theology that is premised on a proper reading and interpretation of Scripture. And this is why it's so important that we listen to our pastors. We uh, we go to a church that is teaching substantive verse-by-verse theology, that we are well-versed in Christology, who the person of Christ is, soteriology, how we become saved, eschatology, the end times, all of these things, and there are many, many more. We need to understand what the Bible actually says. So then, okay, then you might be asking, well, then why do we talk about politics on the show all the time? Well, because we take that theology and we take that understanding of scripture and we apply it to our daily lives so that we can therefore go and fulfill the Great Commission, be good citizens 
in our country, we can preserve and protect the rights that God gave us, and we can have a biblical worldview and apply all of the things of Scripture to our day. That's why we have Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith that says there's this great cloud of witnesses that has come before. They believed in the promises of God in their time, and on faith they acted. This is our moment and our time to understand and know, believe the promises of God, and therefore act.